I wonder if Mary was disappointed. I mean, an angel appears to her, tells her you're pregnant, but not just with anybody. This baby is going to save the world. In fact, the child you carry is not a normal person at all. This is God's child, word made flesh, the Lord themself incarnated in human form. Mary has nine months to contemplate and ponder this earth-shattering news. Nine months to think about what it will be like to give birth to the Holy One. You can hear her awe in the Magnificat we, led, we read last week. My soul magnifies the Lord. Surely all generations will call me blessed. God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things. And so here comes this moment that she has been expecting for months. Huddled in a manger, okay, the delivery room could use a little work, but here we are. Joseph by her side, ready to raise this child who isn't his, but is in all the ways that matter. The baby begins crowning. The moment has arrived. Now he's out, safely delivered. Mary holds Jesus in her arms. And he cries? God, surely there's been some kind of mistake. You told me that I was going to give birth to the Messiah, but this is just a normal baby. No levitation, no laser vision, no super strength, not even a super ability to sleep through the night so his parents could get a little shut eye. Compare this, for example, with the story of Apollo's birth. At the first taste of ambrosia, Apollo is said to have spontaneously transformed from a babe into a man. Just a couple days later, he slays a dragon. There's a god. Mary looks down at Jesus, who has now fallen asleep, head lolling to the side. Where is the savior we were promised? Oh, but here arrive some shepherds. They've been told that this is the child who will, who will bring release to the captives, who will rescue all of Israel. What does Mary tell them? Sorry, the Savior sleeps 18 hours a day right now. He might need to do a little growing up before he does any rescuing. Okay, I'm, I'm being a little glib, but only because when Paul tells us in Colossians to clothe ourselves in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, to wrap ourselves in love, there's a part of me that instinctively reacts, that's not enough. Have you seen the news, Paul? Kids are running around with AR-15s. I don't think gentleness is going to cut it. People died, and people died because Amazon forced them to work through a tornado, Paul. How is humility going to fix that? Politicians are gerrymandering Georgia back to 1897, Paul. We need a little more than love. I'm using current examples, but these aren't just current concerns. Colossae, to whom Paul is writing, was a diverse, multi-ethnic city in Asia Minor that had once been a thriving metropolis, but was tumbling into disrepair. The central trading route that had enriched the city moved, causing serious economic problems. And like many regions in the area, people strained under Roman taxation, particularly amid these broader economic concerns. All of this stress threatened to turn Colossae's wondrous diversity into ethnic strife and violence. Paul himself has his own problems. He's writing this letter from prison. And so in the middle of all of this, beset by economic suffering, fearing intercultural violence, oppressed by Roman's heavy hand, locked away in prison, Paul writes, clothe yourselves with compassion, 
kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That disconnect between the seemingly simple prescription and the magnitude of our problems persists because it's yoked to a deeper existential fear. What if love isn't enough? It's a fear that runs beyond our politics into our personhood. We adore somebody who's sick, and we don't know if they'll get better. Is love enough? A close friend promises they'll help us with something that means a lot, but completely drops the ball. Is their love enough? We go through a breakup or a divorce and turn that wondering back upon ourselves. Is our love enough? Particularly now, as COVID breaks in new and harrowing waves, love can begin to feel impotent. We've loved again and again, we cry, how are we here again? Why can't we have the beautiful in-person Christmas Eve worship that we longed for? How long can this go on? And in the middle of all of it, can love turn this tide? When we're in the throes of this metaphysical wrestling, I think part of our anguish stems from an unfortunate tendency in our minds and hearts to reduce love to something anemic. If love is just warm and hopeful feelings, then yeah, it's probably not enough. If love is merely hopeful promises, it's going to be outmatched by villainy that always seems to deliver. If it's only a story we tell ourselves to sweeten a worldly bitterness, words are not sufficient. But when Paul talks about love, he's referring to something deeper than that. We get a clue in the verse that precedes our lectionary passage. It's baffling to me that the lectionary organizers don't include it in this reading because it's the key to understanding the whole thing. Verse 11 reads, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. I'll read it again. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Love, Paul says, isn't sentiment. It's not principally a feeling. It's not kind words. Love is the innate reflexive position that we are inseparable from our neighbors. Love dissolves the earthly categories that we are told to prioritize, irreversibly yoking us across race, across class, gender, ability, sexual orientation. In Christ, it's not that these differences cease to exist, but they cease to divide us. And in that love, every shackle is broken in the name of the liberating one. I won't lie. Sometimes that still doesn't feel like enough. But if we hit that wall, we must remind ourselves that it's gotta be. Because at the end of the day, it's all we have. Evil may be well-organized and well-funded, but it will never be able to replicate the solidarity which arises from knowing deep in your bones that you and your neighbor share a common destiny. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience are not themselves our purpose. 
They are byproducts of that fierce love that God embodied in their incarnation. When we live with that Jesus kind of love, we cannot help but be humble, be gentle, be patient. Humility rises from knowing that we are not the center of all things. Gentleness is an outgrowth of regarding others with the same kind of tenderness we yearn for. Patience, a product of understanding that we are not living on our own timelines. We're on God's time, and we are going to reach the promised land. And it's that kind of love that will carry us through COVID, too. Love that boldly proclaims, I cannot be well if you are sick. Love that does what it needs to. Gets shots and boosters, wears masks, distances when we must. Love that upholds in its action that our futures are inseparable, even when our bodies must separate. And I bet that's what Mary knew too, as she held the baby in her arms, even though it couldn't fly, even though it didn't change the fact that she was lying amid afterbirth in a stable, clutching Jesus tightly to her breast, invoked in her the kind of awesome, abundant love that blurs the boundary between other and self. And in that moment, Mary knew whatever happened, we were going to be okay. More than okay. Something in that tiny, fragile, embodied hope reassured her, we're going to flourish. And so when the shepherds poked their heads in from the door, Mary didn't see strangers, but friends. Neighbors joined by the radiant love lying in their midst. So she bade them enter. Come, let us adore him together.